Let's begin with a word of prayer. Gracious God in heaven, we desire to be filled with the knowledge of you, the knowledge of your being, that you are a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in your character. We pray that you would fill us with the knowledge of the three persons within the divine nature, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. We pray that you would fill us with the knowledge of your plan and your purpose and those things which you have done and shall do to reveal your being and your persons. We ask that by your Spirit you would make these things known to us here in our theology class, that you would bring them home to our minds and also to our hearts, that we may not be darkened in our understanding, but that we may be illuminated in our hearts, that we may not have the knowledge that puffs up, but the knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. And we pray that we might live in your presence consistently and mindful that it is you who will and work within us that we might will and do for your good pleasure. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue our series of lectures on theology proper, the doctrine of God, we now proceed from the introductory phase of our series to consider God's existence, uh, which is obviously foundational for the study or knowledge of God, we need to grapple with God's existence. And as we said, we're going to be taking a holistic approach to theology, very similar to what you'll find in the recent translation and reprint of Peter Van Maastricht's series of volumes on systematic theology. We're going to be looking at the exegetical aspects of this teaching, in other words, examining a relevant passage of Scripture. We're going to proceed to the dogmatic or doctrinal section, summarizing the teaching of Scripture as a whole. You can see on your handout there. We're then going to look at some polemical questions, addressing relevant questions and controversies surrounding this topic. And then the practical the use of this doctrine, applying the teaching of Scripture to our lives. So we'll see how far we get this uh, afternoon on this, but we're considering God's existence. And a great place to start, uh, though we're not enslaved to Van Maastricht's method or content in any way, I wrestled with what Scripture to kick this off with, and and I uh, I think he started with the right passage that helps us to to begin our consideration. Hebrews 11, verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. But without faith, it is impossible to please him, For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So we see here that the apostle is commenting on the life of Enoch, 
who, according to the book of Genesis, walked with God and was no more because God took him. And the phraseology of Enoch walking with God, I believe in the Septuagint, is translated into the Greek as uh, pleased God. That's where he's getting this idea of pleased God from Enoch walked with God. And of course, can two walk together unless they be agreed, right? There's, a, there's an implication, not the best translation, but it, it's in keeping with the meaning. And so clearly Enoch had a pleasant relationship with God. He pleased God and had fellowship and communion with God. Verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God by way of walking with God. And now he goes on to say, the apostle, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. So he's including Enoch in this list of Old Testament believers who exercised faith and he's using a systematic theological argument here, a good and necessary consequence or inference from the text in Genesis. He's saying, why am I putting Enoch with the believers of the Old Testament? Well, he walked with God, he pleased God. Well, that would be impossible unless he had faith. Ergo, by logical deduction, Enoch believed. Otherwise, he wouldn't have walked in a pleasant relationship with God. So without faith, it is impossible to please him. Now, what is that faith that he's talking about here, that Enoch had and that we ought to have? For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. As we're going to see, the saving faith that the apostle's speaking of here goes beyond a mere assent to the existence of God. However... Um, that is necessary. It is necessary to assent to the existence of God. You also have to believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him based upon his gospel promises, and then you have to come to him, right? So faith involves more than just coming to the belief in the existence of God, but it is essential. If you don't believe that he exists then you're not going to be, you're not going to affirm that he rewards those who diligently seek him or you're not going to come to him because you don't believe he exists. So uh, belief in God, God's existence is essential there in that formula of saving faith. Saving faith requires a belief in God, in other words. And saving faith, as we said, requires more than a belief in God, but not less than a belief in God. As you see in the Apostles' Creed, it begins, I believe in God. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, but I believe in God. Those are the first four words of the Apostles' Creed, that great summary of the Christian faith. And if you don't believe the first four words of the Apostles' Creed, you might as well crumble up the rest of it and throw it in the circular file because it's all about God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So this is of the essence of saving faith and of the essence of Christianity as a whole. God's existence. So it's a great place to start. Uh, it's not a great place to, to finish, but it's a great place to start. The existence of God. And clearly, Hebrews 11.6 tells us that this is required for saving faith. Now, 
let's look at the dogmatic or doctrinal side of this, looking at the teaching of Scripture as a whole. What does the Bible say about the existence of God? Obviously, the Bible presupposes the existence of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So it doesn't start with uh, an apologetic prologue saying, well, here's, here are all these arguments for God's existence. And No, it just begins with, in the beginning, God. So the Bible doesn't seek to persuade people that God exists on the front end. It immediately speaks of God and asserts God's existence, and it tells us about God's existence. Uh, it tells us, if we look at a number of passages here, that, first of all, God's existence is distinct from that of his creatures. Again, right from the very first verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So you have a distinction between the creator and the creation or the creature. That distinction between the creator and the creature is fundamental to the rest of the entire Bible. That's why the Bible begins with that statement. God made everything. He is pre-existent and he exists distinct from the creation that he has made. You can see this in Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak you will change them. And they will be changed, but you are the same. And your years will have no end, so on and so forth. So he's saying here, God's existence is distinct from the heavens and the earth that he has made. These things are perishable. They will perish, but God's existence will endure. They will grow old and be changed, but God is eternally the same. God is unchangeable. Not just unchanging, but it's impossible for him to change. His existence is distinct. And oftentimes when God's attributes are brought forth in the scriptures, you can see a contrast that God is different. He, he, it'll mention the fact that human beings are deceptive. Let God be true and every man a liar, so on and so forth. You see these examples where God's character is set in contrast and distinction from that of his creatures. God's existence is a personal self-existence. God's existence is a personal self-existence. You see this when God reveals his covenant name to Moses at the burning bush, Exodus 3, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Now, the name of God is important. We'll spend an entire lecture, at least one lecture, on the names of God because uh, a name communicates something. It's a description. It's a characterization. God's names point to who God is and what God does. And, and when we think of God's uh, names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works, these, these aspects of his name uh, as our catechism expounds it. Uh, when Moses asked to see God's glory, he showed him all his goodness, and he referred to it as his name. He declared his name. 
So God's name, at the very least, is his essence and his character, his existence. It tells us about him, and it tells us when we see his response to this uh, question from Moses that his existence is a personal self-existence. What shall I say to them? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am, or I am that I am. It's, it's the, essentially the idea is the infinitive verb to be. I am that I am, not I was or I will be, although sometimes God's eternal self-existence is set forth in those terms, you know, the same yesterday, today, and forever, or the one who is and was and is to come, the Alpha and the Omega. But here, it's even beyond that. It's just the infinitive. God's existence is infinite. It's, it's beyond all sequence or tense of a verb. It's just to be. I am that I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers. And here he says, Jehovah, which is derived from that extended statement of God's name, I am that I am, the name Jehovah is derived from that. So it really, when we see Jehovah, we should be thinking the I am. That's the idea. Jehovah, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, Jehovah, God, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. So we see here that God is personal. I am. Uh, there's a subject to that sentence. God uses personal pronouns because God is a personal God. He's tri-personal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's why when he creates mankind in his own image, in Genesis 1, he says, let us make man. That's why when he sends Isaiah to prophesy, who will go for us? But whether it's plural or singular, here it's singular, speaking of the divine nature of God, the oneness of God's essence, it's personal, personal pronoun, I am. So right off the bat, this is in sharp disagreement with the idea of an impersonal God, of the idea that uh, pantheists try to promote, although I'm not sure how many of them are out there, but um, pantheists would say everything is part of God and the universe is part of God and all these things, we're all just part of God and God is this impersonal, all-pervasive force. Well, not the true God. The true God is infinitely self-existent and yet personal. I am. Uh, I am that I am. So he's not just personal, but his existence is a self-existence. He's not caused by anyone or anything. No one created him. No one made him. He didn't have an origin. He doesn't undergo sequence. For him, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years are as a day, which is to say that with God, though he perfectly understands time and sequence as he's created it, he's imminent in this world, he understands it better than any of us, but his being does not experience these limitations. 
He is everything that he is at the present time. He's not changing. He's not becoming. He he doesn't have potential to become something that he's not now, and then he'll evolve. Uh, We we reject all of these conceptions of God. He has an unchangeable personal self-existence. I am, and, and that's it. I am that I am. And that's how he reveals himself. Thirdly, God's existence is necessary. And so it's important when we speak of the debate over God's existence, it's not the same as debating uh, whether, you know, what would, be, what would be a good example of this? I mean, um, debating who won the presidential election in 2020 or debating whether uh, there's a Psalter in the front pew right in front of me, debating just any old fact of history or experience, we can debate these things, but it's not absolutely necessary as the precondition for all human experience and rationality and intelligibility. It's not a precondition for all those things or, or necessary for there to be a Psalter in the front pew in front of me here. That's not necessary. It could be the case or it might not be the case, and our everyday lives, for the most part, are not particularly affected by it. Uh, Even with presidential elections, it's probably a little more significant than the Psalter in the front pew, but it's it's not absolutely necessary uh, which way you go with that. But when we talk about the existence of God, we're talking about the foundation for everything the foundation for metaphysics. Now, again, that's a fancy word. Um, I don't like fancy words. You may not like them either, but unfortunately, we have to interact in the world we live in. There are fancy words out there. So this one refers to being or existence or reality. Uh, Philosophers speak of metaphysics when they speak of what's the underlying reality of existence itself. And that can be very abstract and and in one sense is abstract. But God's existence is absolutely necessary to make any kind of a reasonable account for existence itself. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay? So that's the fundamental presupposition for making sense of the heavens and the earth that God actually created them. The heavens and the earth declare God's glory. This is the environment in which we live. It's all screaming and and shouting concerning the existence of God. And when we undermine the existence of God, everything unravels and falls apart. Um, For instance, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 verse 17 tells us, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Uh, Other translations, I think more helpfully, will say, in him all things hold together. In God, in the person of Christ, if we look at the context, all things hold together. So how do we explain the existence of all of these contingent beings? We, you and I could exist or not exist. We could, we could be wiped off the face of the earth tomorrow 
and the universe would still exist. None of us are necessary. What is it that's holding all that is together? What is it that enables us to understand the fact that I actually exist and you exist and yet we could cease to exist and the world around us would continue to exist. The, the, you, know, you, you begin to look at the world, you see the order and the complexity and the design. How is it that all these things, all these ecosystems in, in the world or all of these intricate uh, systems of uh, organs and, and parts of the body, how is it that all these things are held together? The Bible tells us that it's God in the person of Christ in particular here that in him all things hold together. That's the Christian position. We're going to see that once you pivot away from that, you cannot account for existence or reality. Romans 11.36, for of him, referring to God, of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. So the Bible teaches that God is necessary his existence is necessary to hold everything together whether we persuade an atheist of this is not the point this is true that apart from god there would be no universe nothing would hold together nothing would exist because everything is of him and through him and unto him Uh, hebrews 1 verse 3 it's amazing how many of these proof texts actually point us to the Lord Jesus Christ in his divine nature, but it's true of the divine nature uh, in, in itself. Hebrews 1.3, who being the brightness of the Father's glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. So God's existence is necessary. If God ceased to exist, everything would cease to exist. That's the Christian position. And we can defend that in apologetics, but the point is that's, that's what the Bible teaches. God's existence is necessary. You can't just dispense with it and go on business as usual. You do that at your own peril, and you end up with a metaphysic that is internally inconsistent because you're asserting things about reality without a fundamental ground for reality or explanation of reality. So God's existence is necessary for metaphysics. It's necessary for epistemology. Again, another big word, but it really just means knowledge, truth. How are you certain about what you're certain about? How do you know what you know? Logic, science, scientific knowledge, all these things. How do you know what you know? And the fact is that uh, we know what we know because God is a God of truth. That God has created all things. God himself is the truth. And so God has placed us in this world and given us minds that are fashioned after his own image and likeness with the ability to understand, to perceive, to think, to reason, to to process information and draw conclusions. God has made us in his own image with a mind, with reason. He says, come, let us reason together. Why? Because he is a reasoning God. He's made us as reason reasoning, rational creatures. Our catechism talks about um, sin is um, uh, a violation of any law of God given as a rule to the reasonable creature. Man was made to reason and think, to engage in logic, and to engage in science. And throughout the entire Bible, that's presupposed. The Bible speaks about 
science. You look at the book of Job, it talks about technology, mining things out of the earth, and Solomon had scientific knowledge of what's happening around him, of the, the animals and the birds, and, and uh, epistemolo epistemology. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of wisdom. So in order to account for the fact that there is such a thing as truth, and that there is such a thing as absolute truth, that you can make an assertion of something and say this is true, it presupposes that there's an absolute standard of truth that goes beyond your opinion, my opinion, and w whatever man-made standard may be floating around in the breeze. You need a fundamental, ultimate standard uh, of the difference between truth and falsehood, between logic and irrationality, between true science and between uh, science falsely so-called. So God's existence is the necessary precondition uh, for knowing anything with certainty. Thirdly, God's existence is necessary for ethics and morality. The difference between good and evil, the difference between right and wrong, these things are grounded in the character of God. Uh, what, what, what are we required to do? What are we required to abstain from? Uh, he says, I am the Lord, therefore be holy as I am holy. I am the Lord which brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, therefore, and he declares his law. God's law is grounded in his character and in his authority. If there's no absolute authority, then uh, if the cheetah can chase down uh, the antelope and, and eat it, then you know, why can't some crazy hoodlum chase down an old lady and eat her? I mean, it sounds crazy, but that's what you're saying when there's no absolute standard. You look at what's happening in our world, and um, I, I spend my time mostly preparing for lectures like this, so you guys could probably tell me more about some of these things happening in the world, but the atrocities that are being reported throughout the world in Israel and so on, uh, you can't condemn atrocity unless you can establish that there's a law against it that is grounded in something beyond your opinion or my opinion. Different strokes for different folks. Every man does what's right in his own eyes because there's no king in Israel. There's no absolute standard of morality in which to ground the difference between good and evil, right and wrong. So God's existence is necessary without him. Uh, there's no existence. There's no standard of knowledge and truth, and there's no standard of right and wrong. In him, all things hold together, and when you take him out, all things fall apart and are upside down, and uh, that's when the gospel comes in and turns the world upside down, but really turns it right side up. Fourthly, God's existence is clearly revealed and universally known. We talked about this in our introductory lectures, so I'm not going to go into it to a great extent, and frankly, we're probably going to look at natural and special revelation uh, in separate lectures coming up, because this is so important, and it has so many practical applications that we did not get to in our previous uh, series of lectures. However, God's existence is clearly revealed and universally known. You can see on your note sheet, we have the four C's. Creation, conscience, cognition, and Christianity. These are the four ways in which people in a land where Christianity has come uh, 
experience the revelation and knowledge of God's existence. Obviously in places where Christianity has not reached, it's just the first three, creation, conscience, and cognition. But in a land such as our own, in the Western world, how do we know God exists? Because of creation, the heavens declare the glory of God, the, the firmament shows his handiwork, Psalm 19, 1 and following. There's nowhere where that witness has not been declared. Conscience, Romans 2, 14 and following, the work of the law written on our hearts as human beings. And Romans 3, 19, at, at the judgment day, both Jews and Gentiles, people that have been exposed to the Bible, people that have never heard of the Bible, because of that work of the law in their conscience, all of us will be silent before the justice of God. So it's in our conscience, accusing or excusing us in the day of judgment, Romans 2. Also, cognition. Uh, it's the fool who says in his heart that there is no God. What the Bible's asserting there is that to deny God's existence, you have to embrace a foolish outlook on the world. It's, it's intellectual folly and moral folly, but it's, it is intellectual folly. It is a denial of the laws of thought and logic that have been placed in us by our intelligent designer, God himself. You have to do that to openly deny God's existence, even to deny it at a practical level and say it in your heart. You're fighting against cognition because all of the thoughts and, and the, just the image of God that has been marred but yet remains in man, these things testify. The light of nature, we call it. These things testify to the existence of God, which is why most people throughout history have not been atheists. We saw as well in our previous lectures, Psalm 94, 7 through 11, which says that those who deny God's existence and accountability to him are foolish and stupid because he who made the ear can hear what you're doing. He who made your eye can see everything you're doing. It's foolishness to think that there is no God that will hold you accountable. Also, Christianity. When Paul proclaims the truth to the Athenian philosophers of the Areopagus at Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, Acts 17, verse 17. Therefore, well, this is before he was asked to go speak before them, but he's in Athens. Uh, he's provoked in his spirit regarding the idolatry that's happening there, and he's out there doing some open-air evangelism. It says, therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews. So he's reasoning using logical arguments from the scriptures and either he's in the pulpit expounding this in the synagogue or he's in the synagogue area talking to people, but he's, he's speaking the truth. Uh, in many cases, he was given the ability to preach and teach in the synagogue, so maybe that's what he did. But it says he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, and those are people at the, mark, at the um, synagogue, and in the marketplace daily with those who happen to be there. So that's clearly open-air, apologetics-oriented evangelism with these pagan Greeks who were influenced by philosophy, and he's in the marketplace daily reasoning with them. Now, they did not understand the scriptures. 
And so if you look at the way he then addresses them later in the chapter, it's not as though he fails to presuppose the message of the Bible, but he doesn't begin by reading his scripture text and expounding it the way he would do in the synagogue. He begins, verse 22, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. That could be positive or negative. It could be translated superstitious. But either way, he's observing their own practice. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. So he assumes they know the existence of God and they have some acknowledgement that the gods that they worship by name uh, don't fully exhaust the list of gods. There's some other God out there that we're not really familiar with that is unknown and they have this sense in their conscience that there's some other God that we've missed something. And Paul says, I know what you've missed. You've missed the true God, the living God, the, the only God. Uh, and that's why in your conscience, you're religious, you're superstitious, but you're religious as well. There's a negative and a positive. There's a corruption of the knowledge of God in their idolatry, but the fact that they're worshiping something and acknowledging that maybe they don't have it all together bespeaks the light of nature inside and the light of natural revelation, and he points to that. So he points out an antithesis, but also some common ground. You acknowledge the existence of a God that's unknown to you. Well, I'm going to reveal him to you right now. Verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Now that's a biblical message, but he doesn't cite the Bible. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him, now he quotes a pagan philosopher or poet, for in him we live and move and have our being, as some also of your own prophets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something to be shaped by art and man's devising. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Now, listen, this is where he brings the argument that I'm pointing out here. He's, he's dealt with creation, conscience, cognition, but he brings in Christianity as well as proof of this unknown God because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So where the gospel comes, it reinforces the existence of God by the reality of Christianity. Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. That's evidence of God's existence. That's evidence that Jesus is God as he claimed to be because he was raised from the dead. And Christianity as a historical movement cannot be explained adequately apart from the fact of the resurrection. And, and, and this is not pivoting into evidentialist apologetics to say something like that. Christianity was formed starting in Jerusalem. Skeptics admit that. It began in Jerusalem. 
It began in Jerusalem with people claiming that a man who was publicly executed right outside the city of Jerusalem in the sight of virtually everybody in Jerusalem and everybody in the surrounding area and everybody from all over the world who was there at the feast of the Passover, they all saw him die. And they were all pretty much there on the day when his disciples say he rose again from the dead on the third day. So the whole world, but certainly the eyes of Jerusalem were on these claims. Uh, The apostles were a persecuted people. The government was against them. The religious leadership was against them. Everything was against them, including, if it was a lie, all the eyewitnesses who said, we saw him crucified and his tomb's right here. It's right here, guys. Nobody's going to be persuaded by that. Um, In fact, to, to say that everything that's come out of that in the history of Christianity came about in a way apart from the resurrection is in some sense a greater miracle than the resurrection itself. And so people who deny Christianity uh, are leaning on faith uh, and, and really the kind of, not the kind of faith that Christianity has, which is a certainty in the uh, internally, incons- the eternally, sorry, internally consistent truth of God, but it's, it's a, a faith in utter vanity and, and a faith that really struggles to explain itself in a coherent way. But, but the bottom line is Christianity above all and its influence throughout the ages coming out of those origins serves to confirm the existence of God and of course a whole lot more as well. So God's existence is clearly revealed and universally known. However, God's existence is sinfully suppressed. It's sinfully suppressed. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Whether they're suppressing the truth of Christianity, whether they're suppressing the truth of creation, conscience, and cognition, or all four at once, they're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, they have an agenda, a motive. They're not suppressing the truth merely in ignorance, but they have an agenda. They're ungodly and unrighteous, and they don't want to repent, and they don't want to turn to the man whom God has raised up from the dead. And they don't want to acknowledge their need of a savior. And they want to continue in their idolatry, and so they worship their Mr. Potato God, who they recreate in their own image, and form and fashion, and go through the buffet line of man-made religion and come up with a God that affirms who they are and what they want to do. And so they suppress the knowledge of the true God in their unrighteousness. So it's a culpable ignorance. It's their fault, okay? As we're going to look, uh, God willing, if we get there, to agnostics, you know, agnostics. I don't really know. I don't know if if there's a God. I'm just not sure. I mean, don't look at me. It's unclear, and, and uh, surely if there was evidence, I would believe in God. It's not my fault. I just, I just haven't seen it. Nothing to see here. These aren't the droids you're looking for. It's not a big deal. But at the end of the day, yes, it's your fault. You're suppressing the clear light of creation, conscience, and cognition, if not Christianity itself, because of your unrighteousness. Verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, 
for God has shown it to them. See, on Judgment Day, this is why the agnostic is going to be silent. He's not going to have anything to say. And the atheist, right, who says, uh, you've seen this perhaps on these uh, apologetic uh, open-air evangelism videos sometimes, and sometimes we've encountered people like this where they say, um, Judgment Day, I'm going to confront God on Judgment Day. And, I'm gonna, and he's got this long list of reasons why, as Christopher Hitchens says, God is not good and all these atrocities and it's all unfair. I'm going to condemn God on Judgment Day. Well, uh, no, you're not. You're going to be silent. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. So it's in you, it's coming to you, you're getting it from both angles. God has revealed himself. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. You say, well, I can't see God. Yeah, but his invisible attributes are clearly seen in the ways we just mentioned. Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So God's goodness to them should have provoked thankfulness, but they weren't thankful. They took the credit for themselves, and they glorified themselves. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things because the God that you can set on your mantle or on your shelf or, you know, these uh, Asherah poles that you bow down to, this is a God you can keep under wraps. You can control this God. You don't have to worry about this God uh, bringing judgment against you. So they recreate God in their own image and this is all culpable. This is all sinful suppression of the truth. And of course, God judges that with all kinds of immorality. He gives them over to their wicked lusts, instability, perversion, chaos throughout all of society. We're seeing it in our own society. Uh, the chaos that is ensuing is grounded in man's fundamental sinful suppression of God's truth. God's existence is uh, not only defensible, moving on to the next point, it's not only defensible, but also inescapable. It's important to realize when we think of defending the faith, defending the existence of God, apologetics, the defense of the faith, that we are defending it, and it is defensible. And there's nothing wrong with saying it's defensible as if we're on a defensive posture, because the fact is when we proclaim the gospel, we're on the white horse with Christ and the sword's coming out of his mouth and we're, we're on the offensive when we evangelize. But apologetics, in one sense, is defensive. Sometimes we can use it preemptively when we know that there's uh, this latent rejection or objection to the faith. But it is defensive in a way. God's existence is defensible, but it's also inescapable. And uh, I want to read a quote from someone who has written on apologetics and various other things. And I'm going to ask you if you can tell me who this is that said this. Quote, As to the objection that religious truths are the objects of intuition and that intuitive truths neither need nor admit of proof, it may be answered that in one sense it is true. 
but self-evident truths may be illustrated and it may be shown that their denial involves contradictions and absurdities. Again, listen. He's saying self-evident truths, thinking of God's existence here, may be illustrated and it may be shown that their denial involves contradictions and absurdities. So if you deny God's existence, you're entering into contradiction and absurdity. Therefore, that proves the existence of God. He goes on, all geometry is an illustration of the axioms of Euclid, and if any man denies any of those axioms, it may be shown that he must believe impossibilities. So it's the impossibility of the contrary. In like manner, it may be admitted that the existence of a being on whom we are dependent and to whom we are responsible is a matter of intuition. And it may be acknowledged that it is self-evident that we can be responsible only to a person, and yet the existence of a personal God may be shown to be a necessary hypothesis to account for the facts of observation and consciousness. And the denial of his existence leaves the problem of the universe unsolved and unsolvable. Let me repeat that again. The existence of a personal God may be shown to be a necessary hypothesis to account for the facts of observation and consciousness and that the denial of his existence leaves the problem of the universe unsolved and unsolvable. So he's saying it's inescapable. You remove God and the Jenga stack falls to the ground. He goes on. In other words, it may be shown that atheism, polytheism, and pantheism involve absolute impossibilities. This is a valid mode of proving that God is, although it be admitted that his existence, after all, is a self-evident truth. Theism is not the only self-evident truth that men are wont to deny, end quote. Now, this author is saying that you can prove God's existence by the impossibility of the contrary, and that God's existence is self-evident and may be proved in that way. Any guesses as to who wrote that? Greg Bonson. I was hoping somebody would guess that. Incorrect. Anybody else? I'm not even going to repeat that for the microphone. Anybody else? We're done with Doug Wilson. I don't want to talk about Doug Wilson, please. Um, No, it's not Doug Wilson. Anybody else? Francis Schaeffer. Incorrect. Charles Hodge. Charles Hodge in his Systematic Theology, Volume 1. I think it's on page 212, if I'm correct in my notes here. Many people think that approach to apologetics, that sort of uh, transcendental argument, as we'll see, perhaps we'll see next time, actually, but um, many people think that that was invented by Cornelius Van Til and Greg Bonson and all these guys, the presuppositional apologetics. Uh, it is a great argument, and Van Til and Bonson have a lot of good things to say about it, so we're not denying that. But understand, this is why it's important to not join up with movements and read paperback books and blogs. Read the hardback books, because you'll find a lot of the things that are involved in some of these movements and some of these movements go to the extreme and are not always healthy, but the substance of what they're getting right, sorry, we already knew that. That was already written down by Charles Hodge. Even the old Princeton theologians with more of a classical apologetics approach understood that argument and have been unfairly 
critiqued by some of the presuppositional guys as if they didn't understand that stuff. Um, and again, what we're going to find out next time is um, that the presuppositional approach in our day is probably one of the best, if not the best, approaches to doing apologetics. So there's no question that we appreciate uh, a lot of the things that Bonson has done. I would urge you to watch his debate versus Gordon Stein, uh, the great debate, Greg Bonson versus Gordon Stein over theism versus atheism, Christian theism versus the denial of God's existence. And there's another one, Greg Bonson versus Edward Tabash, Tabash, however you want to pronounce that. Also a helpful debate. There's a Bonson channel on Sermon Audio, I think, that has a lot of these things that some of us had to pay for many years ago, but they're available for free, most of them, many of them. Uh, but understand that our apologetics is grounded in our theology of what the Bible tells us about the existence of God. And so it's not just defensible, but it's inescapable. God's existence is necessary to give any rational account of existence, of knowledge, and of ethics. And so next time, we're going to proceed to consider some of the arguments that have been used historically to show the Christian faith as defensible and to one extent or another to show that it's inescapable. And we'll find that when we get to number five with the transcendental argument, that's really the one that emphasizes the inescapableness of the, of the, the Christian God. And that's why in our day, it's probably the most helpful one, although there are some other aspects to, to these arguments that can prove helpful in our day. Uh, and next time, we'll also consider some of the polemical questions. We're going to, in some sense, critique some of the things that Bonson and Van Til have said, where they go a little bit over the line in terms of a consistent approach to apologetics. But overall, we're very positive on their contribution. And then we'll look at some practical application. All right, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are... And those who come to you believing that you are and that you reward those who diligently seek you shall indeed find you and walk with you and one day uh, be translated into your presence uh, in some sense, even as Enoch was. So we pray that you would strengthen our faith, that you would enable us to gird up the loins of our minds and to sanctify Christ as Lord in our minds and in our hearts, that we may be ready uh, to give a defense to those who ask us concerning the hope that is in us. Please forgive our many sins. Please forgive the way in which uh, we often make mistakes. And uh, if we've done that here today in our thinking, in our presentation, Lord, we pray that you'd forgive us and sanctify our minds and our thoughts to be more clear and more in accordance with your truth and your existence. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.